Hi, and welcome to episode 129 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. I'm Maria Stoljar, and today I'm excited to be bringing you my conversation with Daniel Boyd, one of Australia's most acclaimed artists. We're talking about the must-see exhibition Treasure Island, now showing at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, which looks back at 20 years of his work. I remember when I first came across one of his paintings. It was a few years ago at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. It was very large, about two metres by three and a half metres, and it caught my eye as soon as I entered the room. And I think it's because from afar, I couldn't quite make out what it was. It was a dark monochrome work, but it had this shimmering surface. Parts of the canvas were reflecting light, and as soon as I got closer and my eyes adjusted to it, I could see it was two Indigenous men sitting in a bush landscape, working together to produce fire and who seemed so clearly connected to their land. That work is in this show, Untitled FS, and it's part of the gallery's collection. And I say my eyes had to adjust to it because Daniel's paintings both reveal and obscure the subject of his work. He uses a pointillist technique where he places a multitude of translucent dots over the image, creating a series of convex lenses, as he refers to them. And while you can see the image through these lenses, the rest of the image is painted out, often with black paint. And there's much more to this technique than just the physical use of the material. There are concepts behind it which relate to ways of seeing and perception and which we only had time to touch on in this episode. But if you'd like to delve into that more, have a look at the book accompanying the exhibition, which includes some great essays and Daniel's own words, as well as many images of these stunning works. Daniel's First Nations heritage is central to his work. His ancestors were part of the stolen generation. They were forced to let go of their culture and language, and they lived in fear that if they shared it with their children, they'd be taken away from them. In an interview in the gallery's Look magazine, Daniel said that that forced withholding of culture meant that he just always felt there was something missing. When he got to university, he was trying to make sense of all that. And he talks with me about his time at uni and the importance of the mentors he had at that time. Daniel's work is concerned with looking at history, especially the exploitative nature of colonisation, not only in Australia, but also internationally and from multiple perspectives. The show is curated by Isabel Parker-Phillip and Erin Vink, both curators at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, and I'll be posting a short video to Instagram of those curators talking with me about their thinking behind the show. Daniel has exhibited in over 30 solo shows in Australia and internationally. He's won the Bulgari Award, amongst others, and his work is held in many public institutions, including the National Gallery of Australia, Art Gallery of New South Wales, National Gallery of Victoria, and the Natural History Museum in London. This interview was recorded at the exhibition, and images of the works we talk about are on the website talkingwithpainters.com. I started off by asking Daniel about a decision he had to make after he finished high school. You know, one of the most interesting things when I was reading about your life was that you were like an elite basketball player when you were in high school. Were you sort of tossing up between basketball and art? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, in the, in the beginning, art was secondary to basketball. I, I, I guess I kind of get burnt out a little bit, you know. Why did it win out? Why did art win out? 
I was just searching for something more than like the routine of basketball. You know, I just kind of, um, I felt like um, intellectually I wasn't pushing myself the way I felt I should be. So the opportunity came up and it was, it was kind of just timing, you know. And what was it like, because you went to ANU School of um, Art and Design, what was that like? What was that uni time like? It was, it was pretty, I mean, obviously it was a formative kind of thing going to art school. Uh, I had little sense of uh, art, art historical context, you know, as um, my, my understanding of art was Leonardo da Vinci and, and the tourist, the tourist market in, in Cairns, you know, I, I had that as a, a way into it. So when I got to art school and hid away in the library as a shy young First Nations man from far north Queensland, I, I, I kind of, you know, I stumbled across artists like um, Gordon Bennett and Destiny Deacon and um, Fiona Foley. Uh, Judy Watson and that you know there were um, other artists that were visiting the school other um, curators like uh, Vernon Aki, uh, Brenda Croft, uh, John Mundine so the the, the kind of forum for um, art making became uh, more expansive you know it was it kind of allowed a better framework for me to ask questions that I had and where I kind of fit into the world so yeah right so those people must have been a huge um sort of opening up of your world really in a way yeah it kind of they you know they get they gave me the confidence to to be able to ask questions about um place and um relationship to place so yeah it was it was important to to kind of see those artists and those people working in the arts to see what they you know that they were what they were grappling with and yeah give me the confidence to be able to do it as well yeah that's right especially at a young age like that because you actually more or less had your first solo show after you finished uni or was it in your last year of uni is that right yeah I think I was a little bit cheeky and I exhibited my graduating um, body of work uh, in Sydney here at Maori Gallery and yeah, the National Gallery bought all of all of the work, so it was kind of like a good um, a good start. You know? <laughs> it, gave, it gave me some momentum. I think that's an understatement when the National Gallery of Australia buys your whole show when you just finished uni. <laughs> yeah, um, so I mean, I did. They, I mean, it gave it gave people the confidence to kind of um, to think about. Um, or to engage with my, my, my work and, and the questions that I had. Yeah, well, it must also just make you feel like you have your, a voice. Yeah, it is validating when you kind of, um, when people in positions of respect, like the, you know, the institution that is the National Gallery and the curators like Brenda Croft, it is, uh, yeah, like re- a reassuring thing to... to, to to do that and um, it's uh, it's like anything you need you need moments where confidence is kind of built up you know it's a series of like things that help to build that confidence 
And as a young, um, as a young First Nations person, as you move through society and you're continually being kind of um, uh, the effects of things like racism, and you know, they, it's hard to kind of um, make make sense of of all that. So, I think support networks are really important, and especially in the First Nations community, or art community. That's just what we've always done as people is kind of supporting each other. And yeah. Well, well, I think support is really important, especially when you're looking, you know, as we are in Australia now, we are now looking more closely at our history and, um, and you know, colonisation. And when you're doing that and you're looking back, that is always, I suppose, in a way, it can be controversial. So that support network is really important. Yeah. I mean, it, um, if you're challenging the authority of tradition, you will come up against um, people that want to kind of hold on to that power. And um, as humans, we need to continually ask questions about, you know, how things are. Um, and I think in particular, like understanding the imperialistic kind of model um, of like nation building, you know, there's, you know, there's so, so much room for, for progress in that when voices are negated or to establish power or uh, power structures uh, we it's our it's our kind of duty to make sense of that mm. well and also i think um what your work does as i was saying to you before the first time i saw your work in the art gallery of new south wales i was really drawn in by it and i think the, um, the, the fact that, the, the, that your work has that ability to draw the viewer in, which I'm sure is not just my experience either, that power can also strengthen that message because you are reaching so many people and you're reaching them on a sort of an emotional level in a way. Yeah, it's a, it's a visceral thing. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, um, it, was, it was about trying to challenge the, the kind of power of representation and try to create a, um, an experience that allowed the audience to kind of activate the work, you know, kind of draw, draw them into it so that they feel like they're a part, of, a part of it. Because the First Nations experience in Australia, you know, being um, oppressed the way it has, um, it's, it's not a, um, a separate thing to your experience as a non-Indigenous person. You have a duty or um, an obligation to collectively um, make sense of it. Hmm. Well, uh, well, one of the things I think that's interesting with your work in that to make sense of it requires going back in history and looking at what has happened in the past. And like maybe we can just talk about one of the paintings that is in this very room that we're sitting in that's behind you. It's called Untitled F.S., and it's, um, it's, a, it's an image, it's a very large work. Uh, it's an image of two uh, figures seated on the ground, one watching another light a fire with a stick. And this work, uh, I believe, has been taken from a historic photo. Uh, can you tell me a bit about this work? Yeah, I mean, well, it is, it is about kind of disrupting the, the power of representation, you know, and the control that comes with that. So, um, you know, the, the lens that they were being viewed through was... Uh, um, a scientific lens, you know, through anthropology, and 
when you have a, a singular kind of way into something, it's, um, you know, well, in particular with this, there's, a, there's an exoticization in that kind of, like, representation. You know, it's, uh, um, its singularity allows it to kind of be subjugated into a particular way of seeing that doesn't necessarily represent their human experience. And so um, what I wanted to do was to, um, through the framework, through the language, is to speak about their human experience in a more equitable way. So it wasn't, the representation is through multiple lenses um, and speaks to the complexity of their human experience and not just kind of confine them into this um, empirical model where you're kind of containing them um, in, a, in a particular way. You know, it's, uh, it's about um, shining a light on the, the, the divergent nature of being a human being. And I think the way, one of the great ways that you do deliver these different perspectives is by not allowing the viewer seeing the whole image in a way. It's what, there are parts that you can see and there are parts you can't see. Um, and I think this, is a, this sort of takes us on to, to talk a bit more about your visual language. Um, can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it's like, the, you know, for example, like the, with, with a painting, you need an audience to kind of activate it, you know. It's like you can't have um, uh, one without the other. And there's a, a Martinican uh, philosopher called Edouard Glissant, and he, um, there's a, a quote where he says, the experience of the, the abyss exists inside and outside of the abyss. And so you have to acknowledge what is outside of the abyss as well as what is inside of it. You know, it's the same thing. Um, and so it, it's kind of, you know, that um, uh, acknowledging the, the kind of space between two points of perception or ways of activating and it's kind of more, more about the human experience and how we um, collectively activate something. Instead of having a, a, a singular, you know, it's more about the, the, the chaos of experience or the kind of relationship to time and space. And so in a way it's important to you to interrupt the image for, for that to occur? Yeah, it's making that present. So, um, you know, we we as like humans continually kind of gain associations with different things as we pass through space. And um, we, we continually gain those associations. We become more and more complex as, as we kind of grow. And um, I think we have to acknowledge those, um, uh, underpin um, how we kind of engage each other through that, you know, not, not projecting onto someone what you think they should be as a human, but allowing them to represent themselves. Also, the scale is really interesting. Like the room we're sitting in at the moment, it has like a, quite a few very large works, um, like at least three metres in width, I would say. Um, is that important to you, like when you're trying to reach your, your viewer? I mean, there's, there's, there's different, there's different um, ways of 
presenting works. You know, it, it, it depends on the kind of situation. You know, it's um, uh, it is all kind of relative to uh, a particular situation. The the large works do allow the kind of um, the challenge to a static representation or something. You know, the like as the audience, you move in front of the works and you activate the works through the way that light is in relationship to it. So they they shimmer in that in that sense. And if you have a larger field of um, kind of you know in, into that then it kind of makes that idea that um, even even images aren't static, you know. They continue to gain association through its, uh, how it's activated through time and space. Yeah, that's right. I think a viewer can engage on your with your work in various levels because when you do get that reflective effect, you can see it in a whole different way and I think it draws you even closer, you know. It's sort of partly like, do I, what is that, you know, sometimes you can't quite figure out what it is until you really spend a bit of time with it. Yeah, it is, a, it is kind of like a, a bodily reaction to the surface, you know, you're kind of drawn into it. And it's, it's also a tool to kind of hold on to people, you know, like um, for slightly longer than uh, they would want to be kind of held by an image. So um, I did that in the beginning with the, the kind of the satire. But um, uh, it was trying to seduce the the audience in a way, and um, it it operates differently on different scales. Well, I can see you know you've done some small portraits, and I think they're family portraits, the ones that we can see in the corner here. Do you find how do you feel about your more personal work? Do you find you tr- do you feel that differently about that? Well, I think the you know representation of personal relationships is important to kind of underpin the the like lived experience you know it's creating a less of a separation between like an idea of something and live and the lived experience like it's a way for me to kind of um dismantle those ideas of like the largesse of like stereotyping something or creating a, a sense of who or what you're representing can we talk a bit about your studio because i'm just wondering how uh you know, how you can work with such big works. You must have a large studio. It is, it is now, but like previously, I, I would make things work. You would just have to kind of find ways around the, the restrictions that are there. And um, so it, it really depends on the parameters that you have. You have to kind of figure out ways. Yeah, if you need to get somewhere, you have to work out ways to kind of get around those um, parameters. Well, this show is going to be in the Art Gallery of New South Wales for a few months, which is fantastic. And especially when the, you know, Sydney Modern opens, it's so exciting that people can, this is open as well. But you've also got like a, a number of art fairs that you're going to be included in. You've got a solo show coming up at the end of the year with the Rosalind Oxley Nine. You've got other group shows that you're involved in. Um, how do you juggle all this, you know, uh, work that you've got ahead of you? Um... I spend a lot of time in the studio. <laughs> yeah, is, uh, it, is it a nine-to-five sort of thing? Yeah, yeah. You do, you do have to be consistent. Um, I guess the, the kind of drive has always been, um, been there. 
I've never had to kind of force myself to. Um, but there's there's different ways, you know, you can work through that. You know. What's a bit? What's a good way that you could give a tip to other artists? Repetition. Yeah, repetition creates like um, uh, a um, a rhythm that you know. Once you get started, you you don't you can't stop. So. Yeah, I suppose as you say, if you if you have a drive, a natural drive, um, then uh, you don't have to worry about that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, congratulations again. I just am absolutely blown away by this show, and good luck with your upcoming shows. Thank you. What a wonderful artist. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Daniel Boyd. The exhibition continues until January 2023. It's free, so it's a perfect show to see multiple times. I've been twice already and definitely will be going again. As many of you would know, Talking With Painters is on social media, especially on Instagram, but it's also on Facebook and Twitter. And there are also lots of videos on my YouTube channel with lots more in the pipeline. So if you'd like to see podcast guests in their studios and at their shows, just head over to YouTube and search Talking With Painters. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join me for the next episode of the podcast.